The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. The word of the Lord. Amen. I'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back, going with Mr. Brad back there. And while they're heading that way, I'll invite you, if you brought a Bible with you, to open it up to Philippians chapter 2, which will be our uh, text of uh, focus today. That um, passage that we just read in Philippians 2 <clears throat> is, it is the text. Maybe one other like it. The, the, with this one passage of scripture, atheists have become Christians. And um, some, some, it's so unbelievable, have actually walked away from Christianity because of how immense it is. It is a Christological hymn. It was sang by the early church. Uh, we've got reports several hundred years after Christ as the early church was meeting uh, that they would sing this hymn. It became somewhat of a doxology to them. And I ran out of time last week as I was, as I was teaching this, but this is the second part of this passage, this exhortation where Paul is, he's trying to convince them, he is convincing them, he's encouraging them, he's admonishing them. This church that he loves, remember Philippians is just church that Paul just loves. I, I think it's his favorite. He, he prays for them out of this abundance of joy. But there's two people in the church that can't get along and they're fighting with each other. And he's appealing to them that they would be of one mind, that they would have unity. He says, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind in, in verse 2. Here's what I know. The idea of church is amazing. Christians, though, can be quite challenging. The idea of love is stirring. It really is Self-sacrificial love, but practicing that love is what costs you. Loving people is hard, increasingly hard, maybe impossibly hard. And this is why Paul, in kind of part two of this message, last week this exhortation toward community or unity within community... Remember last week we talked about the poison and the antidote. The poison is our selfishness, trying to fill the voids in our heart that are left by sin. 
We talked about this idea of vain glory or empty conceit, that there's this, we were made for the glory of God, but yet sin came in and wrecked that through the fall of man. And because of that, we're all kind of, we're just posing. We're trying to fill the void that only God can fill. And we do that even in the church. And so Paul says, do, do nothing. In verse 3 of uh, chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. And those words really do stir my soul to think about our church and our community striving side by side for faith in the gospel. One mind, right? One heart. We're, we're, we're doing it together for the faith in the gospel. But it's one thing to talk about it and it's something else to dream about it, to idealize it, but it's a completely different thing to actually love other people this way. So last week was the exhortation. This week is the illustration. And Paul says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, as we dive into your word today, I pray that you would illuminate the parts of it that we need to see and hear and apply. That we would not have gathered on a weekly basis once again today just to walk through the motions, but we've got your word in front of us. And I pray you speak to us. You tell us in John's gospel that your sheep hear your voice. And I pray for all of us in this room that that would be the case, that we could hear you speak. Holy Spirit, bring conviction where there's sin, encouragement where there's discouragement and weariness. Replace the lies that we've believed with the truth. And we'll be better for it in our community. We'll see you because of it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's uh, goal today in this passage is pretty simple and straightforward. It's to help us learn to love like Jesus loves. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to learn how to love like Jesus. He wants the church at Philippi to learn how to love like Jesus. So he exhorts them, hey, don't do anything out of your own interest. But instead of that, that's the normal way to do things. Don't, but we're not doing that because we're a different kind of community. I want us to put this mind, he says, put this mindset on or this attitude or take this posture, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. This is not idealism. This is not him saying, you know what, it would be cool if you could do this. He's saying every spiritual blessing within the heavenly realms is possible for you to walk through the power of the Spirit. It is possible for you to love just like Jesus loved. And, and I want you to do it, is what he says. This is what we need to do. Paul doesn't give us all that is the mind of Christ in these verses. He selects the qualities of our Lord which fit the needs of that church, the Philippian church, at that moment. Their lack of unity, their lack of love between each other became the occasion for possibly the greatest passage in the New Testament. Here's what I know. Your faith is only as good as your love. This is what John told us. 
He said, if you say you love God, but you hate your brothers, then you've deceived yourself, my friend. He's a little more bold. He said, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. Paul would tell us the same thing in his letter to Corinth. If you spoke with tongues of angels, but you don't have love, then your faith is worthless. So friends, there's a lot riding on this. This is important to God. This is important to God's people, that his people, his family would be a people or a community of love. If the world is to be one to Christ by our love, then church, we've got to get really good at loving each other. Not just in name only, and not just the people who do everything like us. We've got to get good at loving each other. I've told you about this camp I used to go to called, uh, we, we called it Pig Camp. It was really Mountain Springs Christian Youth Camp. And it was in the middle of nowhere and didn't have electricity. And it was... The water on the side was fed by a, uh, by, a, by a spring, a natural spring, and we had just miles of hoses connected to that spring, and it would run water downhill to the rest of the camp. And about once a week, there would be a kink in the line somewhere, and uh, it'd be, you just never knew what happened, and everyone would have to just retrace the steps to find where the blockage was, Right. And we would go and find it, and we would clear the debris out, whatever it was, and then we would get returned water again. And in a, in a similar way, this is what I feel, that the church, our church specifically, certainly the church in America, maybe the church worldwide, if there's a problem with the output of our love being like Christ, then we've got to retrace the steps and see, okay, where is the love of God not pouring through us, right, to the rest of the world? And so I've got really two points today. Remember, Paul's goal is to help us to love like Jesus. And my two points are just that we would be loved by Jesus so that we can love like Jesus. That we would be loved by Jesus in order that or so that we can love like Jesus. We've said this before, intimacy with God, breathing in the love of God results in obedience to him and not the other way around have this attitude paul says that you would lower yourself or humble yourself that attitude comes from the connection to the father i was reading jesus final discourse this week just in my own devotional practice and that's John 13 through 17. It starts with uh, the upper room where he washes the disciples' feet, and it ends in Gethsemane. And it's just the last few hours, really, of his, of his life before the mock trial and then the crucifixion. And I was just amazed at who Jesus was. You ever do that? Read a passage you haven't seen in a long time and just be overwhelmed with just... The love that Jesus had for us. He was so, so secure, so loving, so tender, so focused, so determined. You remember maybe in, in John 13, Jesus starts with washing the disciples' feet, which is already a letdown because one of the disciples, Jesus had been with them for three years. Surely they had understood this lesson already. No one, took, no one, no one did it, so Jesus did it. And he starts washing their feet, and he comes to Peter. I don't know if you remember this. Peter's the guy who's going to be the leader of the church, right, and just... 
48 hours. Like, Peter's going to be the guy. And what does Peter do? He mouths off to Jesus, say, Jesus, no, you ain't touching my feet. And then they have this little argument, and uh, of course, Jesus wins because he wins all those things. But, you know, he's basically shut at Peter. Um, then Peter gets real sarcastic. Anyway, so he does the whole thing, and they don't get it, and they do the thing. And then, then Judas goes to betray, and then they're, then they're going to walk from there to the garden. And it says that even in that thing that a dispute arose among them as to who was the greatest. Jesus, Jesus had just given them this, like, beautiful picture of sacrificial love. And then they're like, hey, who do you think is going to be like number two in command in this next thing? You think it's going to be me? One of the other gospels actually records that James and John get their mo mom into the, into the thing. And she comes in like, hey, Jesus, in the next kingdom. Hey, my boys, right and left, man. And they're like, you brought your mom into this? Really? This is how it's getting? Then they go into the garden and they can't stay awake while they're praying. And Jesus comes and wakes them up a couple times and says, please pray with me. And then they can't even do that. And then they come to arrest him. And Peter still doesn't get it. Poor Peter. He takes, he tries to decapitate someone. He misses, chops the guy's ear off. Then Jesus takes the ear and puts it back on. And he's just, can you imagine? But just with the love and tenderness and grace that Jesus has with these people. And then he's on the cross. And he's praying that the Father would forgive these very people who are crucifying him because they don't, they don't know what they're doing, he says. Who could love like this? How is it possible that we could love like this? It's possible because of Jesus' connection to the Father. You know, Jesus' first words were, I will be about my Father's business. In the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of the Father 17 times. In that final discourse I just talked about, 45 times he talks about the Father or talks to the Father. On the cross, his very last words are to the Father. Friend, Satan has one great goal for your life. It's not deconstruction. It's not even deconversion. It's not bad theology. It's not even bad morality. Satan's one great goal for you is to sever your connection with the Father. That's what he wants to do. Because if he wins on that front, he wins on every other front. Because it's impossible for us to love like Jesus without first feeling the love, being filled with the love of Jesus. We see this in the life of Jesus. As, as the ministry of Jesus gets more difficult and more complicated, his connection to the Father becomes more and more primary. The more intense things got, the more time he spends with the Father. This is so crucial. And a lot of us, this is where we lose, either through our busyness, either through our confusion. Like this is where the enemy wins, is to separate us from communion with the Father. Because then we get all out of whack. We don't know who we are. We don't know why we're here. I see two really <clears throat> types of error in the church. And they both come from Luke 15. Luke 15, the gospel of Luke, Jesus is telling a story about lostness, and he tells a story about a lost son, a lost coin, and a lost sheep, and then a lost son. And with every story, what's lost becomes more and more important and more and more costly. And then he gets to the lost sons, and it's really the heading in your Bible, Luke 15, might be of that part, the, the prodigal son, but it's really a, a picture of the heart of the father. 
And he tells a story about these two sons. And we don't have time to go into the whole story. I really encourage you to read it. Luke 15, one of my, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. But he tells this story about this uh, older son who is uh, maybe more religious and determined and keeps all the rules. And this other son, the younger son, the younger brother, it calls it in the text, is one who demands his inheritance from his father just to go out and waste it. Several verses go by, the younger is out wasting, the older is working diligently for dad back at home. And the son, <clears throat> the younger brother, comes to this realization that my life is terrible, all I have to eat or what I'm feeding the pigs with, it would be better for me to be a slave in my father's house than to stay where I'm at. And he goes back home. And of course, he goes back home and the father receives him and greets him and he has this whole spill. But I want to talk about the older brother's response first. The older brother's response revealed he had this spirit of religion. And a religious spirit is one of working to earn God's favor. It's one of striving. If you feel that you do it well, you become proud if you don't do it well, then you shrink back in self-pity and self-loathing. It's this <clears throat> religious spirit. This religious spirit has turned discipleship into this striving, soul-killing exercise of earning God's favor. If I can just do all the things right, then maybe God will be proud of me. This religious spirit has... <clears throat> stigmatized confession and accountability so the wounds of our heart never get healed. The enemy has taken away this idea of healing away from us almost entirely so that people just sit in chairs or pews as broken people feeling guilty every week because we can't live the life that the Bible says we're supposed to be able to live. This religious spirit mocks spiritual warfare to the point where the church knows almost nothing about how to break strongholds or to actually live in the freedom that we were just singing about. This religious spirit invades the church. This is what Paul came after so hard in his letter to Galatia. It's what Jesus came after so hard, really through the entire narrative of Luke's gospel. Here's the bottom line test to expose the religious spirit. If it doesn't bring freedom and it doesn't bring life, then it's not really the gospel. It's not Christianity. If it doesn't restore the image of God and joy in our hearts, then it's not the real, true gospel. That's, just, that's the spirit of religion, and a lot of us have that. That we feel, if we go through a week and we blew it several times, then we're scared to even come to God as if he as if his anger was not already placed upon his son Jesus. So we don't even want to come. There's a religious spirit, but then there's the orphan spirit. The orphan spirit comes from the fall. It, it's seen best, the orphan spirit and the younger brother. The religious spirit is seen in the older brother because when he's so irate at his father for throwing this celebration and this feast for his younger brother who did not live the right kind of life, how could you dare forgive him, much less bless him? At the end of the story in Luke 15 that Jesus is telling, it's the older brother, the religious spirit, that's actually outside of the house. And I love that the father's heart is so big, he goes out and pleads with him to come back in. The orphan spirit, that's the, <clears throat> the one that the, that the son had. 
Remember, he writes his little speech, and he says, you know what? The slaves that work for my father have a better life. Maybe I can just go be a slave near my father's house. I'll get the benefits of being close, but I could never again belong to the family. While the religious spirit tries to be good enough to earn the father's love and acceptance, the orphan spirit operates out of insecurity and jealousy. I've heard someone say this to me even recently. I know that God loves me, but I don't believe he likes me. What a terrible way to live. No boldness, no real intimacy, living out of fear and just trying to stay out of the father's way. Like the father's like an alcoholic that comes home as a raising drunk and you just have to hide from him. If I stay out of his way, then maybe I'll be okay. That's, that's the orphan spirit. But that's not the relationship that Jesus invites us into. In order to really be loved by Jesus, we've got to understand this. We've got to understand our position in the family. And that's a position of sonship, of daughtership. It's the spirit of adoption. In John 16, verse 27, Jesus reminds his disciples, for the Father himself loves you. That's the spirit of sonship. There's over 50 verses that we could read in the New Testament about the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption. It's not just love by proxy, like God kind of just puts up with you, but God loves Jesus, and so the So the father loves Jesus and he's putting up with us as a favor to him. No, no, no. That's not what he invites us into. He invites us to have a spirit of sonship, to be part of the family, to have boldness before the throne of God. Bringing to God, Ephesians says, every different kind of prayer. Jesus tells us when you pray to him, call him Abba. Call him daddy. Call him whatever your intimate name is for your dad. Call, Call him that. Because there's no... There's no posing, there's no, yes, he's the king of kings, but we have access as a son, access as a daughter. The spirit of sonship functions out of love and acceptance. Friends, learning to abide in the love of God is the secret. It's the secret to all this. There's really no other question I heard one theologian say, we've got to become black belts in abiding in the love of Jesus. Isn't this what Jesus said in John 15? He's got his disciples around. He's, he's washed their feet. He's teaching them something. This is, the, this is the story about the vine and the branches. And he says in verse 9, remain in my love. He didn't say remain in my teaching. He didn't say remain in the good systematic theology I taught you remain in my sermons, remain in the worship, all those things important, but the most important would be that they would learn to remain in his love. This is the living water that's flowing into the heart of every believer. When we remain in the Father's love, when we are loved by Jesus, because it's the Security that that brings us, that allows us to actually serve other people. In John 13, right before he's about to wash his disciples' feet, he says this in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal 
took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist and he began to wash their feet. I think it's so important that it puts this in there because we've got to be loved by Jesus in order to love like Jesus. This is what Jesus is experiencing in his connection with the Father. He knew that all things had been put under his power. He had come from God, was returning to God. He knew who he was. He knew why he was there. He knew that there was nothing that could take his identity from him. And because of that, he was so secure in who he was. He served. There's two times in the scriptures where God actually speaks this blessing over Jesus. The Mount of Transfiguration and in his baptism. God the Father speaks from heaven. The gospel's recorded. This is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And this is our position, friends, as believers, that the same love and affection of the Father and to Jesus himself is the same kind of love and affection that he has actually extended even to us. That's the spirit of sonship. That's the spirit of adoption. That you can say those same things, read them over yourselves. I do it all the time. I put my name in there. God the Father saying, Luke, you're my son. I'm accepted. I don't have to strive. I don't have to earn. I don't have to have this religious spirit that strives to earn your favor or, or this orphan spirit that says that I'll never be accepted. I'm accepted. I have his affection. Luke, you're my son whom I love. God doesn't just love me. He likes me. The illustration is the father in Luke 15, how he runs to his son. Colossians says that we are dearly loved sons. God has accepted. I've seen his affection and felt his affection and his affirmation that he's well pleased. Security is what enables servanthood. The only way that we can really love like Jesus is to first be loved by Jesus. You will only serve in the spirit of love to the degree that you are secure in the Father's love. Let me say that again. You will only serve in the spirit of love to the degree that you are secure in the Father's love. Our text today has two movements. I'm going to look at them real quick. <clears throat> Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the two movements? The first movement was he emptied himself. You ever had that argument with your spouse while you're in bed late at night and one of you needs to get up <clears throat> to go turn the alarm on or let the dog out or whatever it is and you're like, you do it. No, you do it. Jesus is in heaven with the Father, with the Spirit, perfect trinitarian dance going on up there and someone's got to go save humanity but jesus didn't say well you know dad you do it i mean look at them you know seriously look look at them 
who though he was in the form of God, didn't tell equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. The first movement is this emptying of himself to, to love like Jesus. Friends, we have to have a posture of a servant. And not just a servant, a, a sacrificial servant. This is that story in Matthew 20 where the James and John's mom are trying to get, get, the, get his sons the positions on both sides. In response to that, Jesus tells them in Matthew 20, I, I don't think I have this on the screen. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you, not so with my new community, not so with the people of Jesus, with the people who follow the way. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first movement for really be a community of love, that really radically love other people in the way of Jesus is one, we too have to empty ourselves by taking the posture of a servant. The more mature you become in Christ, the more secure you become in your identity as a dearly loved son, the spirit of sonship, the more you're going to want to just serve other people. You know, a two-year-old demands that their needs be want, their, their needs be met. You ever been in a restaurant with them? And as soon as they're done eating in like three seconds... You're still waiting on the food, and then it's train wreck, right? They demand that their needs be, be met. An immature teenager may be the same way. They want what they want, and they're just going to let you know. And if you don't give it to them, right, you'll have to deal with it. But it's the mature adult that doesn't say, what do I want? What does the mature adult say? What does the family need? He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, again, but not just servanthood, but sacrificial servanthood. Everyone loves the idea of love, but no one wants to pay the price to love. Our invitation here is to walk the Calvary road, to die to ourselves so that we might love others like Jesus loved them. Your translation actually might say that he, he became a bondservant. But taking on the form of a servant, a bondservant was one who didn't, they weren't captured and forced to be slaves. They were free, but sold their freedom back to their master because their master was so good to them. They had earned their freedom, but sold it back to them, willingly saying, I want to stay as part of this family. This is, it says, this is the nature that Jesus took on. He was a bondservant. He, he owned nothing. He willingly signed himself he assigned himself to us. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He owned nothing, not a house or a land. He had no wealth. He had no boat. He had to use the disciples' boat. He had no horse. He had to send them to get the colts from someone else. He had no room. He had to borrow a room. He didn't even have a tomb. He had nothing. He borrows everything. The one who owned everything, who opened his mouth and spoke everything into existence. Can you even imagine? While he was on earth, he owned nothing. But purposely made himself dependent upon the people who were around him. 
he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in a human form, this is the second movement, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The first movement to be love in the way of Jesus is you, you got to empty yourself. You, you, you can't be full of yourself and full of the love of Jesus at the same time. Does that make sense? Secondly, you, you humble yourself. Indeed, Jesus humbled himself. He was humble in the fact that he took the form of man, not a more glorious creature like an angel. He was humble in the fact that he was born into this obscure, oppressed place. He was humble that he was born into poverty amongst the despised people. He was humble that he was born a, ch <clears throat> a child instead of just appearing as a man. He was humble in submitting to the obedience appropriate of a child. Can you even imagine as he's mom's reminding him to go brush his teeth every night? Jesus, go brush your teeth. It's like, I created everything, mom. He was humble in learning and practicing a trade, even the humble trade of a builder. Humble in the fact that he waited so long to launch a ministry. He was humble in the fact that his companions he chose were mostly morons and they just couldn't get anything right surely there were some more special people on the planet he was humble in the audience that he appealed to and the way that he taught he was humbled in the temptations that he allowed and endured he was humbled in the weakness and hunger and thirst and tiredness that he endured he was humble in his obedience to the heavenly father he was humble in his submission to the leading of the spirit he was humble in choosing and submitting even to death on a cross he was humble in the agony of his death. He was humble in the shame and mocking and public humiliation of his death. He was humble in the enduring, the spiritual agony of his sacrifice on the cross. When no one was even there to watch it, his, his disciples had all left except for John. Can you imagine the humility of Jesus? One theologian says it this way, we can imagine that it was possible for the Son of God to become man and pay the sins of the world without all of this humiliation. He might have added the humanity of a 33-year-old man to his deity. He might have appeared before man only in his transfigured glory. He might only have taught men what they needed to hear from him. He might have suffered for the sins of man in a hidden place on the earth, far from the eyes of other men, or even on the dark side of the moon for that matter. Yet he did not. He humbled himself. And he did it for the surpassing greatness of our salvation and his work in us. He did it to teach us how to love other people. Full of love of the Father, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he poured out his love on us and for us. Love will make you do crazy things. As you think back to your stories of dating in high school or college, how many of you are embarrassed by some of the dumb stuff you did for the people that you just fell in love with? Just, just me? Am I the only one that did really dumb stuff? I had two great loves when I met Ashley. 
I love money and I love food. I still love those things. They're just further down on the list. You've heard my stories of how I used to hustle uh, fake watches out of the back of my trunk. A uh, little side business. Watches, Mont Blanc pins, Dunienberg purses. I had it all. I was, I was the one, I was the guy, you know. You know a guy, I was that guy. Pagers, cell phones, all out of the trunk of my little Mazda protege. And then I met Ashley and I had to stop that stuff. She didn't like that very much. She thought that was shady. And it was, it was shady. I also love food. I mean, I love food. I had a job in Shreveport right next to Grandy's. Anybody remember Grandy's? Grandy, come on. Yeah, so I would go to Grandy's every day before I worked, and I would get a chicken fried chicken with two uh, scoops of mashed potatoes and white gravy over the whole thing, and about six or seven of those, like, bread from honey yeast rolls that the little grandma brought to you. I mean, how do we not have a Grandy's anymore? We should, we got we to bring those back. <clears throat> Anyway, in, uh, in, in that like six months time, I took that job and I had uh, left, you know, the athletics and all those things. I took that, taken that job. I gained about 60 pounds in six months. I just put it on. And I really didn't care because Grandy's was so good. I just didn't even, I just bought stretchy pants. It was just, it was, it was really okay with me. And then I met Ashley. And um, Ashley didn't, didn't seem to care. She was this little 100-pound soaking wet thing. And... Uh, and then we had one of those, uh, someone showed me a picture of me and her. And it looked like she was my snack. It really did. I was like, <clears throat> I'm not kidding. That's just what it looked like. It really did. And so I made the decision just to start losing weight and to stop going to Grandy's and to eat Subway instead. Um, and I lost about 80 pounds. And I would go work out every day at 1030 at night and on my way to the gym every night at 1030 driving to <clears throat> the Plex, I would just think of my love for Ashley. Because, because love will make you do crazy things. And scale that up about a kabillion times and think about the love in the heart of Jesus for you. Who leaves the glory of heaven and humbles himself in such a radical way to take on human form and human form in the midst of people who would not accept him in this little bitty community of Israelites in the smallest, most rejected town of born in Bethlehem but raised in Nazareth. And it says that he, he did this for us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let me just bring this home for some application here. Again, this is written in the context of unity. The mindset that we need to take on in order to really love each other well. Covenant, what's it going to take for us to be a real community of love? Love in the way of Jesus, not love in the way of the world. I think it's these three things. Love is about how you reconcile when there's pain. Love is about how long you stay when you don't get your way. And love is about your willingness to suffer on behalf of other people. That's what real Jesus love is. How you reconcile when there's pain. 
We live in a world that says, if you don't understand me or if you're against me, then I'm just going to leave you where you're at. I just, I'm not going to reconcile. But the beauty of the gospel is this picture of reconciliation, how you reconcile when there's pain. Listen, I started the sermon by saying, listen, some, some Christians are the worst. They, they are the worst. And I've, I've met a lot of them, and regretfully, I've been one of them. That I've said things that hurt people, and I've done things behind their back. But real, the love of Jesus is not one that's, that's easily shooed away. No, it, it reconciles even when there's pain. Love is not about how you feel just when we're singing. We had an incredible worship set today. I love that song, Oh Hail King Jesus. That, that, might be, that might be the song, like entering into heaven one day. Can you imagine everybody singing that song? I think we're going to sing it for eternity. It's going to be incredible. But love's not just about how you feel when you're singing. I love all of you when we're singing. Love is about when, when, when you offend me. And you hurt me, willfully or unintentionally. And yet the love of Jesus, because I have this secured servanthood, I know I'm loved perfectly by the Father. I know I'm already accepted. I don't have to strive for anything. I am perfectly loved. So because of that, then I can, in return, be so filled up with the love of God that I can go love incredibly difficult people. Because that's what love does. It reconciles when there's pain. Love is about how long you stay when you don't get your way. Again, this, this text flies in the face of consumer Christianity. Consumer Christianity says, oh, it's all about me. What kind of cruise ship are we on? What kind of ministries does Covenant Church offer that would really just bless my socks off? And we try to have great ministries, and we do want to be a blessing to you. We want to be an incredible blessing to you. But love is about how long you stay when you don't get your way. And finally, love is about your willingness to suffer on behalf of others. Isn't this exactly what Jesus showed us? hanging on the cross, and he's forgiving people because they don't know what they're doing. Now, we talk about creating this kind of culture. How do we create a culture of unity? How do we create, as Covenant Church, how do we create a culture of love? Do you know how hard it is to have people voluntarily strip away their privilege and preferences so we can learn to love people in the way of Jesus? It's impossibly hard. How do we create that kind of culture? I like to define culture as the way we do things around here. You know, you probably all grew up in a home that had a, had a culture. It had a certain way that you do things. In my house, it was, we never, we took naps on Sundays, and we never disrespected our parents with our, I was too scared. I really thought I would die if I spoke, disrespected my dad, you know, by mouthing off to him. Culture is defined as how we do things around here. There's a special culture. You go to South Louisiana and find a special culture down there. They say unique things. My wife's not in here. She's in kids today. But even yesterday, we were pulling up to Starbucks yesterday. Long day, coming home from somewhere, pull up in Starbucks. And she looks at me and Claire in the car and she says, we getting down? Like, are we, are we on a horse-drawn buggy or something? What, is, what do you mean we getting down? That's just what those Cajuns say. We, we getting down means do you want to go inside? That's what it means. Now, I have also found that some of this is not Cajun talk. It's just her unique family. They just have some of their own little things, too. That's kind of their thing. Um, 
Cherise, you ever heard that before? We getting down? Okay, so, it, so it's not just Ashley thing. Those South Louisiana, I was born in South Louisiana, but raised in North Louisiana. So like, it's just in Ashley's blood. She just loves a parade. She will come to your parade. She does not care what you're throwing. She just loves a good parade. Um, somehow their intestines can handle the spiciest food of all time. I have no idea how it works. Uh, they kiss each other as a welcome at church. I went to church with Ashley and her family one of the first times, and this uh, 45-year-old woman in front of me, I was probably 22, she turned around, had a little greeting time at church. She turned around and just laid one on me. I had no idea who this woman was or what that hairy lip was about, but I was... <laughs> we get around those people, and you know what Ashley says? She looks at me, and she's like, these are my people. They just have a culture. I was reading this text this week, and I was just praying that our culture would be so radically different. It would be a counterculture of the world that we would really love like Jesus. That's just how we would do things around here. We wouldn't, we wouldn't get in a spirit of offense. We would know how much God has loved us and we would willingly lay our preferences down so that we could love others in the way of Jesus. This kind of love only comes when you're willing to reconcile when things get hard, when you're willing to stay, when you don't get your way, when you're willing to suffer on behalf of others. And if we're honest, this is really what you and I really need. This is what Bozier City really needs, is a counterculture in the way of Jesus. We're going to take communion here in a minute. I'll invite the band up. I'm done. But I want you to just uh, spend a little bit more time talking to the Father this morning and listening for the Spirit. We take communion in a minute. I love communion. It's just this beautiful remembrance of what we're doing. You don't have to be part of our church. We have an open communion, but you do have to be part of God's family because if you're not part of God's family, this is not going to make any sense. Jesus had his disciples around them, and he told them that when they gathered there to do this in remembrance of him, proclaiming his death until he comes again. And I want you to see both parts of this, this intimacy that you're part of God's family. He's invited you to the table. We're starting pre-COVID communion again today. Yes. We're, we still have the little cups. If you're, if, if, if you're afraid of the, the common bread, um, you, just, or if you just don't want to take the common bread, just take the little cups. They're at every little station. But part of the physical illustration of communion is where bits of pieces that are torn from a whole. And it just reiterates this part of God's family, that we're part of the family of God. So you come and you take the bread and you, you dip it in the drink and then you partake of it. It's this reminder that you've been invited into God's family, not with a spirit of religion, not with an orphan spirit, with a spirit of sonship. And then we turn around and we walk back to our seats and we remember we're not only there to be intimate and to be called in and to be loved and blessed, but then we leave with this security that enables real servanthood. I want to pray for you. If you just bow your heads right where you're at. We'll have the 
prayer team back in just a minute. If you need to pray with someone, but before we even get into that, would you just ask Holy Spirit that he would speak to you? Maybe you've just been trying to love in your own power and it's impossible. Maybe some of you in a room this size, you're, you're not even part of God's family. You've been a religious attender. You've talked about some of these things, but you've never really given your heart and life to Jesus. And my prayer is that today you would just take that step. Others of you, there's fractured relationships, I believe, even in this room. And it doesn't matter if it's their fault or your fault. It really doesn't matter. The heart of Jesus is that you would see reconciliation. So own your 2% or 10% or all of it and just, just ask for forgiveness. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It might be one of the hardest things you've ever done. But we should be a community of love. God, I pray for my friends. I just pray, God, that you would do what you need to do in our hearts, and our lives. Lord, that you would work in us. Lord, that the gospel would be beautiful and on display. As you say in Titus, that we would, we would be a community that adorns the gospel. That the gospel is compelling and good news in our city because people can actually see it. It creates in us this love in the way of Jesus. Lord, do this in us and through us. Thank you for your love for us, that we don't have to strive this morning, that we don't have to earn your affection, that you've done all of this on our behalf. That salvation is a free gift of grace by faith. And that we remember this beautiful gospel as we take communion here in a minute, that we're the ground level at the cross. No one earns their way in. Lord, I pray that you would light a fire in our hearts. That we would be secure in our position with you. Have a spirit of sonship and daughtership. That we would be able to radically serve others. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Worship teams in the back, if you'd like to pray with someone. Our communion servers are in the place. Take all the time you need. Do whatever God plays in your heart.